KRCL, Salt Lake City. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. I'm Nick Burns, and this is Radioactive, your show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. Tonight on the show, with the white supremacist Patriot Front arrests at a Pride event in Coeur d'Alene and Orem City working to try to censor a Pride display at the public library, Equality Utah's Troy Williams, Poe, and somebody we know and I know well from KRCL. Troy Williams will be joining us. He's certainly got some uh, <laughs> some things to say. Also joining us, Peter Bromberg, who is the advocacy chair for the Utah Library Association. He'll be with us to talk about that censorship. Later on the show, my pleasure to get to talk with Dr. Ada Ferrer, who recently won a Pulitzer Prize in history for her book, Cuba and American History. This extensive read covers from Columbus to Castro to President Biden. And most importantly, I think the book links the past with the present. So we'll get to talk with the author. But to get into this rallies and resources, my producer, Laura Jones. Hi. Hi, Nick. Anything on current events that you may want to talk about? I know we're going to get into Coeur d'Alene, Patriot Front and Pride Backlash. I think folks should be aware that there are some positive steps going forward. We see in Salt Lake County some moves to move away from turf to, you know, fake grass to get rid of some strips. Yeah, $8.4 million of, uh, of uh, um, is it ARPA money? I think it is. It's coming from the feds to replace all that grass and turf. Uh, very small project, though. Small project, but still millions and millions of gallons of water over the 10-year lifespan of the artificial turf. A number of counties around Utah, as well as many cities, are moving forward with plans to go all green energy with Rocky Mountain Power. Folks will have to opt out if they don't want that. They're talking about possibly a 5 to 10% rate increase. You know, Laura, I'm fortunate. I'm one of those people who pays that increase already to offset my power with solar and wind. But this would make it countywide in Summit County and include Moab and Grand County down there and a number of cities all over, including Salt Lake City. So that's kind of exciting and certainly will bring green power more to the forefront of more people's consciousness. So those are a couple of things I think slowly moving forward, very exciting. Kind of related to those issues is what's happening with the Great Salt Lake. And I wanted to remind folks that you can get the latest news from all the organizations in the Great Salt Lake Collaborative at greatsaltlakenews.org. There's a recent story there about a technology answer to farmland water use in the West. There's also, it's just idyllic, Great Salt Lake Rowing Club plows ahead despite lower water levels. So lots of different uh, lenses onto the issue of what is happening with the Great Salt Lake and some solutions there as well. Per perhaps this story from Leah Larson about a solution to the Great Salt Lake's algal blooms piping wastewater to where the brine shrimp graze. That's in the Salt Lake Tribune earlier this month. We'll put a link in tonight's show notes, but I also wanted to share another episode of Lake Effect, the podcast out of Utah Public Radio. Here we go. In light of a shrinking Great Salt Lake, news, education, and media organizations have teamed up across Utah to form the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, a solutions journalism-based initiative aiming to inform the public about the crisis facing Great Salt Lake. I'm Ellis Julin. And I'm Amy Van Tatenhove. We're science reporters at Utah Public Radio, and we've been reporting on Great Salt Lake since it hit a record low last summer. 
Through this work, we realize that everybody has a story about the lake and what it means to them. This is Lake Effect, an ongoing series that will share these stories. We thought for this first episode, we would share our stories. So Amy, what does Great Salt Lake mean to you? To me, it means American white pelicans. So in addition to working at UPR, I'm a PhD student at Utah State University studying white pelicans around Great Salt Lake. So to me, Great Salt Lake means early mornings, smelling the sulfur wetland stink waft through my truck windows on the wind, (laughs) uh, cleaning silt from under my fingernails for weeks after being elbow deep in the Great Salt Lake mud, and of course, a sense of accomplishment at the end of every successful field day studying these giant and incredibly goofy water birds. So Ellis, what does Great Salt Lake mean to you? To me, Great Salt Lake is seeing birds sometimes by the thousands and feeling like you're stepping into a scene in the middle of a nature documentary where you have this ecosystem living and breathing all around you and you get to just be in it and experience it and see it. Last weekend, I was at Antelope Island and I saw ravens playing in the sky, flipping upside down and free falling until they caught a thermal. And I just think that that's what it is. It's, it's this place where the natural world is so clearly there. We hope this series inspires you to reflect on your own experiences with the lake, where we can appreciate what this water body means to us as individuals and to Utah as a whole. This is Lake Effect from the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. Stay salty, Utah. My name is Jim Steenberg. I'm a professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of Utah. I do most of my work on lake effect storms, not just in the Great Salt Lake, but of lakes around the world and seas around the world. And I'm a pretty avid skier. I still ski over 50 days a year. I look at the Great Salt Lake as this barometer of climate change and humans and what we're doing to the hydrologic system that we have here. On a personal level, it's just a neat place. I've gone and visited Antelope Island and we do some hiking out there. You know, I've been almost all the way around the Great Salt Lake for work at one time or another, installing weather instruments, you know, way up on the west side of the lake. You get out there, it's very quiet and you hope you don't get a flat tire. And I've also been swimming in the lake a couple times, including in the North Arm where the salinity is super high. And uh, my recommendation to people, if you're going to do that, is to bring a large jug of fresh water to wash off with, (laughs) which I didn't do. (laughs) I see it as, uh, like I said, a barometer of climate change, but a barometer also of our environment. And uh, it's kind of a canary in the coal mine right now. It's telling us that, hey, look, you're doing things that are going to have some detrimental impacts on the environment of northern Utah, which is a, a beautiful state. We've tried to understand what makes lake effect happen a little bit better. It's not quite as simple as just cold air over over the warm lake. So it's important for skiing. It's important for the greatest snow on earth. So that's one of the reasons why I got interested in it. That's another reason to be concerned about the shrinking Great Salt Lake. I think people are, they tend to think the Great Salt Lake is hugely important for snow here in Utah. It's about 5% of the total snowfall in the cottonwoods. And so that doesn't sound like a huge number, but it can be important, especially since lake effect is most prolific in October, November, and early December to help get the ski season going. This is Lake Effect from the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. Stay salty, Utah. And that's a double dip of Lake Effect, a podcast from Utah Public Radio, one of the many partner organizations in the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, which includes KRCL. It's a solutions journalism initiative with partners like news organizations, education and media organizations, all working together to help inform people about the plight of the Great Salt Lake and what can be done 
to make a difference before it is too late. You can read all our stories at greatsaltlakenews.org. Nick, I wanted to introduce Peter Bromberg, formerly of the City Library, but now with the Utah Library Association. And I got a press release recently that that, um, suggested another reason to also talk to Troy Williams. And it's because of something going on down in Orem with the City Library and a pride display of books. So I think this is where we can get into it with your guests. Go ahead. Yeah, Peter Bromberg, Utah Library Association Advocacy Chair. What a title. I love that. Thanks. Actually, I co-chair with Rebecca Cummings, a great partner. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But still, to get to be the advocacy chair, just it's it's a job I, I would like someday. And Troy Williams, hi. Thank you. Nice to see you. Hey, great to be back with you all. Oh, and of course, we know you now as Equality Utah's Executive Director. You were formerly, of course, my producer here at KRCL. But Peter, let's jump in with you. This, this attempt at censorship of a pride display at the Orem Public Library. Uh, this is, in fact, the Orem City Council stepping in and stepping on the library and, of course, stepping on the public. So what are we exactly talking about here? What's the concern and what's the library doing? Yeah, well, the concern is that um, the Orem Public Library last year had uh, a number of pride displays in children's um, adult and teen areas as part of uh, uh, Utah Pride Month. And at that time, uh, city council member Terry Peterson um, spoke out against that. He, he was actually quoted as saying that he was disgusted by it and we needed to protect the children from these materials. Um, and, you know, at that time, the library director um, you know, stood firm and and really talked about how uh, that, you know, highlighting that these LGBT items during Pride Month was reflective of a spirit of inclusion, that the city had established that this is a where you belong um, Summerfest theme. They, she said that the goal of the Orange Public Library is to serve all of our diverse community, um, that the Library Advisory Commission was aware of, of the displays and supported the library's efforts to serve um, everyone in the community. And this year, um, there is no display in the teens or children's areas. And again, I want to stress this is we're talking about age appropriate materials, right? There are age appropriate picture books that talk that that depict the reality of maybe a child that has two moms or two dads or things like that, that are uh, non traditional families. And these are the materials we're talking about. So um, it was reported initially um, by a former staff member on Twitter um, that those that the city council had intervened to prevent the displays of those materials in the children's and teens area the materials have will be available in uh in the adult area um so the, the books will and the materials will be there but not where the teens and the, and the ch- and children will will be to see them so troy williams um i kind of thought and maybe i'm just plain being silly or ignorant but i kind of thought we were past this point in time where we could just stuff stuff back in the closet but it kind of seems like that's what's happening in orem yeah the the spirit of anita bryant lives on (laughs) Um, oh sad but true we have well we truly across the country there has been a tsunami of anti-lgbtq hysteria uh, book banning legislation, uh, and it's manifesting in, in rather ugly ways. Uh, one trope that uh, fringe right groups are recycling is that LGBTQ people are pedophiles. And so uh, so these complaints have emerged uh, as part of that, that the, and are promoting the idea 
that these books would somehow corrupt children. Uh, but as Peter said, you know, the, the reality of 2022 is that there are LGBTQ children and there are straight children with LGBTQ parents, and they shouldn't be ashamed of who they are or ashamed of their family. So, I mean, you're raising a really good point that this is recycled, right? We saw this with the, with the breakdown of the Soviet Union when the big bad communist threat sort of went away, you know, 1990-ish, 1991, we really saw a rise of, you know, let's attack the gays and lesbians now because we don't have the communists anymore. Right. And this was common then, right? That, oh, they're out to groom our kids. They're going to make our kids gay somehow. Um, it's kind of frightening, though, like you say, the scope these days. Yeah, I think historically this this kind of um, things happen during times of economic and social distress when things are collapsing and emerging. I think the pandemic has certainly radicalized a group of people who are looking for a scapegoat. Uh, they they have their their pitchforks and torches going after the Frankenstein monster, and <laughs> and that that is disturbing to see these trends emerge. Uh, it was really interesting. Uh, I was the subject of uh, of an attack on the Tucker Carlson show because I had somehow, along with Scott Anderson from Zion's Bank, corrupted Governor Cox. Uh, and you know, Tucker Carlson's uh, guest, you know, referred to me as a groomer. And you know, and and then that kind of hysteria is um, promulgated on um, right wing television on a very popular uh, show um, radicalizes the right wing and leads to danger. Uh, and, 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 we're, and we saw that this past weekend uh, when two to over two dozen people were arrested in quarter lane, yeah. uh, a bunch of guys crammed together, uh, packed in together in a U-Haul truck with guns ready to disrupt a pride celebration. So this, these um, this kind of these kind of tropes, uh, this kind of of careless rhetoric, has dangerous real world consequences. Yeah, good point. Um, if I can, if I can. No, add, Peter, add I wanted that. I wanted you to jump in here about this issue, and I know we can't keep you a long time, but please. Yeah, well, I mean, just to to build on what what Troy was saying, that there there is this is real world danger that's being created here, and that you know that this is harmful to to kids and families. That we you know we know that uh, LGBTQ plus youth are four times more likely to attempt suicide. We know, as recently reported, I believe in the Tribune, that hate crimes against LGBTQ plus Utahns nearly doubled in the last year. Um, and there's there's also research from the Trevor Project that shows that when LGBTQ plus youth have access to safe spaces and information, um, that their mental health is is improved. So you know this is th th this leads to real world consequences. Um, you know, and again, I don't, I don't have to belabor that. I think Troy's the content expert on the show here on, in this area. No, but, but, but in terms of libraries, in terms of your work, how common is this for city governments, elected officials to want to crack down on libraries? We've seen book bannings. We've even seen uh, Mr. Reading Rainbow himself come out and say, please read all the banned books. Those are the best ones. Um, but how common is this sort of interfering with trying to get information to the public? Yeah, it's very common. And so it's my day job is actually I'm the associate director for every library. We're a 501c4 that does advocacy work for libraries across the country. And 
for the last year since I left the city library in May, um, my full-time job has really just been trying to address this across the country. And we're looking at state legislation. We're looking at um, challenges at school libraries, at public libraries. We're looking at legislation that um, criminalizes librarians um, for providing materials. Um, we're looking at legislation that that provides for civil penalties. And it's really, it's, it's, in, it's in every state, it's in every community. And the, the groups that are behind this and the money that has is behind it have become over the last year particularly increasingly organized coordinated and funded um and and it's scary they're running for school boards um and you know this is not over by any stretch um and and there you know this really started uh, there was more of a focus of what i have to air quote anti-crt materials as well as anti-lgbtq plus um, over the last uh, few months, uh, there's been a, a really intentional focus turning to LGBTQ plus as well as um, you know, anti-trans activities. Um, and, 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 and Chris Rufo himself, who started the anti-CRT movement, right, was say, said that the, he, they're focusing no more on LGBTQ because it's more, quote unquote, politically explosive. So this is, this is an intentional attempt to build political power, um, to raise money, to grift, you know. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's um, not only harming uh, people, real people, it's also destroying our, our public institutions in the process. Good point. And a couple of quick questions before we have to let you go. How do you see the general public in Orem reacting? Are folks stepping up for the library? Absolutely. I mean, there was there was a uh, change.org petition posted last year that had over 2000 signatures. Um, this year, my organization, Every Library, we just dropped a petition yesterday. And um, I think uh, last I checked in about 24 hours, we had about 75 signatures. So, um, you know, and not bad for 24 hours. And absolutely, there are there are Orem um, residents who are uh, horrified by this and are mobilizing to speak out against it. It's not like there aren't people who are gay in Orem, for God's sake. Um, of course. Is this kind of action, is this kind of censorship actionable? Is this something that the public could go to court over or are there other public recourses? Yeah, so that's that's a great question because, you know, uh, um, this does implicate the First Amendment. So, so canceling or moving um, materials based on viewpoint, the First Amendment says a government body can't do that. Government cannot restrict materials that are otherwise have the protections of the First Amendment. Um, you can only do it if the government has a compelling interest to do it. You can't do it based on viewpoint. And again, this is viewpoint based. They're not saying we're doing it based on age They're definitely doing it based on viewpoint. Um, and they're making it less re more restrictive. Um, so there is a potential First Amendment implication here. Um, part of the challenge here, though, is that the city council and the library director are publicly denying this. And so unless there is a paper trail and email or if there's uh, you know someone who was present in some of these conversations who can come out you know and say this is what happened um, it, it becomes kind of he said she said type of um, situation so you know what I'm hopeful that the press will look into this and and do what the press does well and um, and talk to people and maybe get some hands on some documents that can really surface what what the truth is. Um, I think we know what the truth is, right? Um, but but to have some to have enough documentation to take it to court and prove a case is another story, right? Good point. And again, that's why we're doing this story today, and that's why we have you on Radioactive because that's what uh, this show at, on KRCL is all about. Real quickly, for people who are library patrons regularly, what would you suggest they do productively at their local library? Yeah. So. 
really it's it's show up and speak up right okay. so so email show up talk you know let your your views be known to the library director uh particularly put it in writing to the to the city council to the city manager and mayor and show up at, at meetings as well um we have to show up and give voice to this it's the only way that that we can push back on on this and and one last thing is that you know this Orem public library has a collection development policy that says that we are guided by the principles of intellectual freedom and really gets into some detail about what that means and looks like that policy was passed by the library advisory board in an open public transparent meeting with opportunity for the public to have input and consultation that is legitimate government when a city council behind closed doors makes an order like this um, that and is not standing in front of the community and saying we are thus ordering and we're going to stand behind this decision that's government in the dark without an opportunity for public input um, it goes against the legitimately passed policy so there's a really significant uh, good government issue here as well um, related to the harm that's happening to individuals and the censorship issues uh, on top of that well, Peter Bromberg, thank you for joining us. The ALA website for folks who want to know, learn, read more from you all. Um, so ULA's website is ULA.org. That's the Utah Library Association established in 1912. We've been around for a while. Uh, check it out. Everylibrary.org is my uh, organization and we're doing, we're 100% donor supported and all of our work is pro bono. And so check us out at everylibrary.org. Peter Bromberg, thank you very much. You are the advocacy co-chair at the Utah Library Association, among all your other good work. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Nick. Thanks for covering the story. Appreciate it. Oh, our pleasure. Troy Williams is still with us. Again, Equality Utah's executive director. Let's get back to this Patriot Front extremist white supremacist group up at Coeur d'Alene. Coeur d'Alene, long a hotbed of anti-Semitism of white nationalism. I attended an academic conference once in Coeur d'Alene with a specific emphasis and look at papers that examined plurality and uh, multi-ethnicity and a bunch of white supremacists came and stood in the back of the room looking menacing just to kind of play a threat. So this isn't new in that part of the world, but this is pretty wild. A bunch of guys crammed into a truck um, and somebody evidently saw them getting in the truck and called the police and now the police are getting death threats. It's kind of crazy and kind of scary for those in Coeur d'Alene who went to this event. Well, it's scary, not just for the people in Idaho, but it's scary um, for people in Utah when we um, discovered that that several of them, I believe that you know, eight or nine uh, of, of the number were actually from this state. Uh, and so, you know, we had just finished our week of, of Pride celebrations, and this happened on the sixth anniversary of the horrific Pulse nightclub shootings in Orlando, Florida, um, where 49 uh, LGBT and BIPOC individuals were, um, were massacred. And so, so th these are not things that we can take lightly. Uh, that is the whole intention, though, uh, of, of these kinds of thugs is to, um, to, to strike fear and intimidation in a community. That's what a hate crime uh, does. And so, you know, our, our response quite simply is we will not be terrorized by, by these, you know, frightened men. Um, and it's just sad when you look at their mugshots and you look into their eyes and you think that at some part, somewhere in their life, 
they were taught to fear and hate others. Where does that come from? Do you see a connection with sort of hard right religious groups? Because there, to some people, seems to be an increasing connection between sort of hyper right Christians who sort of have uh, God told us to do this. And I'm going a little bit out on a limb here. But again, as you pointed out, these folks, some of them are from Utah. They trained in Utah. A little bit unclear how many of them were active members of the LDS church. But it's not very Christ-like, but yet I see that. Yeah, I, I to me, you know, the, the, to embody a, a, a Christian faith or any faith, you know, is is to love one another. Uh, clearly, these men are not abiding by that. But throughout history, we do see, and we have too many tragic examples of people who have used God and used religion to justify their own heinous behavior. Uh, and so, and so, yeah, I don't know the ideology, the religious ideology of these men, um, but I'm sure that they can, they can look to um, certain traditions to find justification. It's, are you ever afraid yourself here in Utah, your work? I mean, Equality Utah, you are able to go up and lobby on the Hill. You are very visible. I mean, congratulations in a backward way for being called out on Tucker Carlson. That's kind of a, that's kind of a claim. Um, it was a badge of honor. I'll take okay, it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. But still, are you ever kind of personally scared or members of your group? I, yes. Um, I okay. have been doing this as, you know, for like 20 years. And I, there have been many times when I have gone up and spoken in front of a crowd of, pe of people and it's a big, massive crowd. You don't know who's in the crowd and have, you know, thought to, the thought always crosses your mind. You know, is this the moment? Mm -hmm. Is this the moment where, you know, someone takes a shot? Um, and I think that's especially the, the era that we're living in right now, where people have such uh, easy access to weapons and can kill people in an instant. You can kill several people in, in, a, in a quick instant. And so these are concerns that are always um, on you know, paramount in our minds, especially when you're um, organizing these events and you have a responsibility for the well-being and the safety of those who attend. So yeah, these, these are concerns I think that every um, advocate uh, has. And here in Utah, of course, <clears throat> Oh, this is going to be hard for me um, to even mention it. But our own Senator Lee wanting what content warnings on television shows and various crap like that. Right. Um, that seems to me that runs the risk of putting you in even greater danger. And I'm sorry for that. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. So I <laughs> thanks for I yeah, I I I feel all that. And um I, I'm more worried for my staff and my team. Um, you know, we, we it, it's we we purposely moved um, our office um because we were on, on a on a on a on a a main floor that people could access from the outside easily through the windows and it wasn't secure, it wasn't safe. And um, since I've been in Equality Utah, I've probably had the, the police intervene in, in three um, death threats wow. that, that directed towards me and, and my and my organization. So so yeah, so this so so I take all of this very seriously and very personally. And I do believe that when lawmakers are careless and um, and, and really get swept up in the culture war hysteria, that they are perpetuating the kind of fear and anxiety that activates and radicalizes these, these uh, young men that we saw in Coeur d'Alene. 
Yeah, young men who can, like you say, walk in a store and leave with too many boxes of bullets. Before we let you go, Troy, and thank you for taking time and talking about what I know is difficult to bring up. But let's talk about some good good news. Your, Your allies, Gala, it's fantastic what you've got planned. It's fantastic. Yeah, we are super excited. I mean, the Allies Gala, you know, this, this is our first year back. Well, we, we were on a two-year hiatus because of COVID, um, but we're very excited at, at the Eccles Theater on August 27th to welcome Eddie Izzard, yes. who is this iconic a comedian and actor, and, and she's possibly the, the biggest transgender star in the world, and we are excited to welcome her. Um, tickets are available at allies twenty two. 2022.org allies2022.org um but you know there's been so much uh clamor and concern and hysteria around oh. transgender um kids and so we thought well let's bring the biggest transgender star in the world to utah so that's what we're doing uh, in August. 27th. i think of eddie Izzard, and all i can think of is ciao and riding a little motor scooter yeah. oh ciao. it's fantastic So again, in the midst of all this turmoil, in the midst of all this active violence, in the midst of all this hate, Troy, it's lovely to see you. Shout out to what you do and shout out to just put this on at the Eccles and, you know, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. Thank you. That's what we do. Thank you. Troy Williams, Executive Director, Equality Utah. Thank you for taking time. Laura Jones, thank you for rallies and resources. Everyone, you can find all the events and resources about tonight's show. Check it out on the Rallies and Resources page at krcl.org. You can check both under the Community Affairs page um, and also the Radioactive page. I'm Nick Burns. When we come back, Cuba and American History with author Dr. Ada Ferrer. And to get us there, to get us there, this is Chan Chan from Buena Vista Social Club on KRCL Radioactive. The Utah Department of Health and Human Services has information and steps for parents affected by the infant formula recall and shortage, now available in 28 languages in addition to English and Spanish. Visit health.utah.gov for details. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and their Loves Diversity Initiative. Mark Miller Subaru is a proud community partner of Project Rainbow, spreading love together this Utah Pride Month. Learn more at projectrainbowutah.org or markmillersubaru.com. We are back on Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns and ahead on your community connection, KRCL Democracy Now, of course, rolls at 7 p.m. with Amy Goodman, Rude Awakening with Liz at 8 p.m., and Maximum Distortion with Forgash and Cody D. That's at 10.30. And of course, John Florence starts a brand new day every weekday at 6 a.m. Joining us now, author Dr. Ada Ferrer. She is the Julius Silver Professor of History and Latin American and Caribbean History at New York University. Her new book earned her a Pulitzer Prize in History. It's called Cuba and American History. Ada Ferrer, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Um, Most listeners know I lived in South America. I lived in Argentina as a kid. So this kind of history is 
familiar to me. And again, probably not so familiar to a lot of people around the country. So thank you for taking time to do this. Yeah, my pleasure. This book, again, you won a Pulitzer Prize. Congratulations. Thank you. You look at Cuba from actually a few months before Columbus showed up and then all the way pretty much to President Biden. But what you clearly do that I really like is you link this sort of joint history between Cuba and the United States. You have all these multiple narratives from the well-known to the forgotten, and I wanna ask about some of those, from the slave-based economies of sugar, tobacco, rum, to communism, to Castro, to today. You yourself, Cuban-born, American-raised, daughter of immigrants. So Cuba and American history, it's really your story and your Pulitzer to win, I think. Thank, thank you. You know, it did feel when I was writing it that um, that I had been preparing my whole life to write it, right? That in terms of my, my personal experience and in terms of um, just all the work and back and forth I'd done between the two places for over 30 years, it just felt, it felt natural and, uh, for me to do it. Oh, and I presume this is part of your teaching at NYU is Latin American history and yes. Cuba so and I, all the, okay. So Latin American history, Caribbean history. I do have a course uh, on, on the history of Cuba that, that I also teach every couple of years. You get any backlash? We see so much animosity towards academics these days. Does anybody push back and think, gosh, you ought to be teaching something different? Not so much, not so much at NYU. I think, um, you know, it's interesting. There was a time I started teaching here about 27 years ago. Um, but now I almost feel, you know, and the reason students are interested in Cuba changes all the time. So you played Buena Vista Social Club, you know, before you introduced me. In the late 90s and early 2000s, people were signing up to study Cuba because they'd seen Buena Vista Social Club. You know, it was because Obama went to Cuba. There's, you know, or because of a refugee crisis and they saw like the rafters in 1994, right? So, so um, there was probably a time when people signed up and then some people signed up for it uh, because they're interested in the revolution or in socialism. So I feel like there's, People come to it many different ways. People have very, you know, many different expectations. And what I try to do in teaching and also in the book is to get them to um, to realize how how little they know, not in a bad way, but just to just to kind of uh, I want them to follow me along and follow the stories and the historical actors along and kind of just reserve political judgment. Just get into the history and then see where you are at the end. Good. Thank you for that. And th that gets me to Cuba and American history. And that title really seems important to the project. Yeah. And it's probably not apparent when you first opened the book. But th did you have any trouble just thinking of, you know, that seems like such an obvious, it's an American history, yeah. even though so many of us think of America as only the United States. Right. That's probably what I liked about the title that, um, it's not clear what it means. Hmm. Uh, what does she mean? Does she mean that this is a history of the U.S.? Does it mean that Cuba is part of the Americas writ large? What, is, what does it mean? And it's all of those. But I like the fact that it's a little unsettling, that it gets readers to pause and wonder what it is. And so I called it that for that reason, but for, for other more specific reasons. And that is that I focus, as you said, on the relationship between the two countries and the way each has each country has shaped the history and, and destiny of the other. 
from way back before 1959 and way back before Fidel Castro was born. So that's one reason I call it an American history. The other is that the U.S. Is so, has had such a great impact in Cuban history that I think that to study Cuban history is also in a sense to study U.S. history, but to study it from the outside in, to get an outsider's perspective on U.S. history. So Good that's point. why I like it, yeah. Yeah. And one of the things you do in your book that I don't think most kids don't get is you you clearly make a distinction between the different kinds of history. You know, for example, there's the date that Columbus sailed, right? That, you know, he got in the ships and the three of them headed out and yeah. blah, blah. That's a fact of history. But also perhaps even more important is the narrative of history, the way we craft the stories and of course, as you just said, the stories that don't get told right. about Columbus, about Spain of that era. Yeah. Um, and I wonder overall in, in, in the world of history, of academic history, mm-hmm. how is that changing sort of the telling and the teaching of history changing? Are students becoming more aware that what they learn is just one narrative of history and not perhaps inclusive? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we, you know, you try to teach students that they have to read things critically and think about who's writing them or who's, who's saying the things that are being said and for what purpose and in what context. So you do try to get them to teach, I'm sorry, to read um, and, um, and interpret uh, critically and with an open mind. Um, so yeah, but it, but it's just you know it's so apparent. I do re- I've been doing historical research for over three decades. I spend a lot of time in different archives and libraries where you're kind of you know sifting through the raw material all the time. These like you know these weathered documents sometimes that are falling apart, and you just realize how how imperfect they are. And even something as simple as a name, you know, history does not record every name, right? And so, you know, I have this one story in the book that's about the University of Havana in the 1920s. It was a hotbed of student activism. And uh, I described the campus and this beautiful, tall, wide staircase that goes up to this, the main entrance to the university. And there's a statue of a seated woman. And the model, there were two models for the, for the, for the woman on the, you know, seated up there. One was the model for a face, for the woman's face. And she was the white, she was a white woman, the daughter of a professor. We know her name. And the other one was Mm -hmm. the model for the body. And she was a woman of, a woman of color and no one recorded her name, you know, and that history is just built with those kinds of silences and absences, the, the body is invisible and the face yeah. gets to be white. You kind yeah. of have to love it. Um, I do want to ask about art a little bit more as we get into this, um, because you mentioned that. But let's go back a minute and kind of follow your book through in the time that we have. Columbus, of course, stopped in what we now mm-hmm. call Cuba. Uh, he thought it was China for what it was worth. Um, he was, of course, a colonizer out for gold. Uh, leaving abject genocide along the way. Uh, You point out that perhaps 90% of the indigenous peoples were wiped out by Columbus and his followers over just a few decades. Um, But it was only just a little over 100 years later that that same project started in North America. Um, And again, that became Manifest Destiny. It became more genocide. And if it wasn't gold, we certainly had silver and plenty of other exploitations. but this narrative, this parallel narrative just doesn't get told. 
So real quickly, and you do the great job of this in the book, but Columbus and the terror and the decimations to the islands he visited, for folks who aren't familiar with that, take us through a little bit of it. It's really kind of Yeah, well, you know, I think the Caribbean is fascinating. It's it's the front lines of everything, of, 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 of European colonialism, of the transatlantic slave trade and the institution of slavery. And so it's the Caribbean that bears the first brunt of conquest, of indigenous genocide, of African slavery, of plantation agriculture and deforestation, right? That's that's where it happens there first, and then it gets taken elsewhere. So what you Columbus was an explorer. He didn't spend that much time on the islands actually trying to govern them. Cuba was um, was colonized uh, beginning in about 1511. And really the Spanish did there what they had done first in the island of Hispaniola. They, they looked for gold. They tried to harness indigenous labor and put them to work mining gold and silver. And what resulted was um, devastation. You know, the, 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 you know, as you said, about 90% of the population died from disease because indigenous people did not have immunity to European diseases, but also from, from overwork, from hunger, from war, Mm -hmm. because when they resisted, uh, the Spanish fought them and um, viciously sometimes, and, and even suicide, there was, there were high levels of suicide among the indigenous in Cuba and elsewhere. I mean, you, you do write about that, that it's fairly chilling. And, and again, on some abstract level, Many of us know a little bit about Cortez and going into Mexico and all those massacres. But but as you say, it all started first in Cuba and what they called Hispaniola and many of those um, smaller islands where where I guess the Europeans first thought it was China. But but more recently, and, and you mentioned the 1920s at the University of Havana, but Jose Marti, poet, essayist, freedom fighter, fighting for liberation from Spain. Again, Marti died a few years before what we know about, about Teddy Roosevelt, which is mostly what we seem to know. But there's so many of these names that would be incredibly well known everywhere but the United States. Yeah, I mean, Jose Marti, he was so he was often seen as kind of the, the main intellectual powerhouse behind Cuban independence. And he spent more of his adult life living in New York than living in Cuba. He was, in a sense, you know, another immigrant in, in New York, living in Brooklyn, trying to, you know, trying to make ends meet, combining work in journalism and public speaking and, uh, and things like that. But he was, he, was an, he, was a, he was just a fascinating figure. And there were, as he advocated for Cuban independence, you know, in the in the 1980 in the 1880s and 1890s, he stressed in particular two things, and that is that uh, that Cuba could be a society where racial equality existed, where racial discrimination had no place, where uh, Black Cubans and White Cubans together built a nation. So that stood in stark contrast to what was going on in the U.S. at the same time, right? In the 1890s, where you have the end of Reconstruction and the rise of lynching and things like that. The other thing that he stressed was that the U.S. Oh, you've got a puppy. So nice to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the other thing that he stressed was that um, that the U.S. Um, 
could be a menace to Latin America, that the U.S. was very interested in expanding into Latin America, uh, that the U.S. did not respect Latin America, did not understand Latin America. And so he really wanted Cuban independence to be real and to serve as a break for U.S. expansionism. So those were the two things, a, a critique of U.S. imperialism and an emphasis on, on, on a new kind of... Um, race relations, really. Yeah. Again, the 19th century, I think it's so poorly treated from a grand perspective in U.S. schools. Cubans, of course, were organizing for Cuban independence in cities like New York and New Orleans. But there's also this myth, I think, that the U.S., you know, that we won Cuba. Yeah. It's independence from Spain. Yes. Oh, hum. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's inc- that, that, and that perception is so important. You know, because Cubans actually first began their war, the first war for independence began in 1868. So basically from 1868 to 1898, you had three separate wars of independence and decades of organizing and raising funds and writing and uh, in favor of independence. And then the U.S. really came in just at the very end of that process at a point in which the Cuban independence army believed that victory was imminent. And the U.S. came in because the Spanish uh, or because the the USSS Maine exploded in Havana Harbor. The U.S. came in, declared war on Spain. The war ended a few months later. Uh, And really, it almost feels like, again, in the narrating of history, right? Not history as it unfolded, but in the narrating of history, this 30-year struggle that Cubans had waged became this war of a few months that was the Spanish-American War. There wasn't even a place for Cuba in the title. Yeah, good point. We even wiped Cuba out of the title. And of course, here locally, the Black soldiers, the Buffalo soldiers that were stationed right here in Salt Lake City were the same soldiers with Teddy Roosevelt in Cuba. And I don't think anybody here knows that either. Yeah, Um, yeah, isn't it interesting? You can just kind of wipe out decades of of struggle with Teddy Roosevelt and a pair of glasses and a little stuffed teddy bear. Um, So, so, but Marti was a freedom fighter, of course, but also a poet. He died a few years fighting a few years before the Americans, the U S troops showed up. He was also a poet. And you mentioned the arts earlier, the arts in Cuba. And again, you know, we just played Buena Vista Social Club. Many KRCL listeners are going to know and be familiar with famous Afro-Cuban jazz musicians. Um, Maybe a few people across North America know about Ruben Dario and Modernismo or Cuban films. I can think of Lucia. Um, But to me, I can't help but think there's also kind of a cultural genocide in just sort of wiping out Caribbean art in a large way. I wonder if does it hit you that way? Oh, not really. I mean, there is, um, I think historically, there's always been a, you know, interesting, creative, artistic production, whether it's in music and all kinds of music, Afro-Cuban music, Spanish music, uh, jazz, uh, even cla- classical. Uh, there's a vibrant, you know, poets, writers, Martí is just one, there are many, many others. Um, I start the book with uh, talking about a a famous Black sculptor from the 20th century uh, who actually, and, you know, he he constructs monuments, he builds monuments, sculpts monuments of many of the figures who come up in the book. And he also sculpts 
monuments of anonymous people as well, who are also all over the book. So I do think there's a rich, rich culture uh, in all, in all, you know, in all, all, in all media, right? The book is Cuba, an American History. We're talking on Radioactive with Dr. Ada Ferrer, who wrote this book. She herself, an immigrant from Cuba, her parents rather, immigrants from Cuba, now a professor at NYU of history. So speaking of speaking of what else many people across North America don't know, you know, there's the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Bay of Pigs, the Cold War breakdown. Um, I can think of Al Pacino and Scarface. But, you know, your book goes much, much deeper into this long legacy that got both countries to today. We were just talking about how that 30 years of, of struggle was sort of wiped out from U.S. history. But what else would you really like folks to know about Cuba yeah. getting us to today getting that us to they today. don't? Well, um, OK, getting us to today. There's so much. But part, you know, you, we mentioned this. The, the, the Cubans getting wiped out of that name, the Spanish-American War, and that difference in the way the two countries see, saw that moment, whereas Cuba saw it as Americans coming in and stealing independence, the Americans saw it as coming in and helping Cuba win its independence. That difference is going gonna, is gonna to be so important even when you get to the Cuban Revolution of 1959. So Castro takes power uh, he enacts, or the, the new Cuban government enacts an agrarian reform. Some Ameri large American landholdings get confiscated. That, that accelerates, and then more American companies, or all really American companies, get nationalized, et cetera. But the way in which American statesmen talk about that is always something like, we, we sacrificed ourselves to win Cuban independence. We will not let Cuba become communist. And there's, there's in that period, there is such a deep misunderstanding, I think, among American leaders because they insist on, um, they insist on two things. One is they insist on, on interpreting what's going on in Cuba, primarily within a Cold War framework. And then they also, when, when they go beyond that and think about the bilateral relationship between Cuba and the US, they always see themselves as, you know, as benefactor. And I think that you cannot understand what happened in Cuba in 1959 and in the years that followed, unless you understand the relationship between the two countries and how important the idea of sovereignty and, and nationalism was to the Cuban people. You write a lot about the Cuban Revolution of 1959 and Fidel Castro, of course, before 1959. He certainly existed before that and was very active. I especially enjoyed reading about his reading list when he was in prison from the early 1950s on. It was amazing what he was reading. Um, but I'm very curious about why you think he really continued to celebrate his failure there was this uprising right to attack an army barracks, him and his brother, these different coordinated attacks, abject failure. And yet that became a celebratory revolutionary moment later after he was in power. That yeah. seems weird to me. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So the, he and, and his brother and a group of about 100 men attacked um, the second army, the second largest army installation in the island, which was the Moncada barracks in Eastern Cuba. And they did that on July 26th, uh, 1953. Uh, they were arrested, they were caught, they failed. It was a, and 
you know, he was sent to jail. And when he was in jail, he did a lot of reading, as you said, he did a lot of writing, and he always stressed in his letters to, to certain friends and colleagues how important propaganda was and how important kind of self-representation and controlling the image of yourself was. And, and, and he was very good at that. And part of what, part of the appeal of the, of calling, basically he called his movement the 26th of July movement after that, after that failed attack. And that did several things. One is it kind of, it, it was just, his group was the only one that did that. Right. So he didn't have to share the limelight with all the uh, university students, with all other different kinds of activists who were also fighting against Batista. It also put the emphasis on the East instead of Havana, where most uh, where most movements were based. It also gave them ready martyrs because people had died in the attack. So from the beginning, there were martyrs to celebrate or to, or to commemorate rather. And, and so when he, you know, from the beginning, they went to jail and every 20, the, not only the 26th of July, the 26th of every month, he would commemorate it with fellow prisoners. And then, of course, it became the major holiday after the national holiday after the revolution came to power in 1959. I mean, there's so much that so much that perhaps we ought to know that we could benefit from. Again, post-1959, we saw Cubans flock to Miami. Some of us are old enough to remember the plane hijackings where people would get on a plane to Miami but want to go to Cuba to join the revolution. Um, but to bring us up to today, as we have a few more minutes to chat, to bring us up to today, there is this now large conservative voting block of Cubans in Miami but the media tends to portray them all as a great big monolith, but I don't think that's quite accurate. Yeah, no, it is, it is not accurate. The other thing is a lot of people assume that, um, that there's a straight line between those Cubans who left Cuba in the early 1960s and became conservative voters and conservative voters today. And the truth is that uh, a major portion of Cubans Cubans in Miami are Cubans who left after the 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, and and it and the and actually the the, the most Republican identified Cubans in Miami are recent arrivals, and I think that is really important to know because these are people these aren't people who lost property or who had property taken away and left. These are people who were born well after the revolution started, uh, decades after in many cases. They didn't have property. They just, they really believed that, um, especially after the fall of the Soviet Union, that, that, that they would have greater opportunity if they came here. So this year, uh, so far, actually, I haven't, I haven't checked the numbers uh, for May, but by about mid-May, I think you had um, about 100 and over 110,000 Cubans who'd arrived at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, so about 1% about of the Cuban population, it's bigger than any of the refugee crises before, but it's less visible because they're not coming on rafts, right? They're coming in over the border. And again, more of the story that just inadvertently doesn't get told. A couple minutes left. We are hearing about increasing unrest in Cuba, ongoing protests, crackdowns. Um, what do you make of what do you make of what's happening, and what maybe can I put you on the spot to predict for the future? Well, the unrest—I would not say that it's ongoing. Uh, I think 
um, it is, it's really, it's hard to do anything like that in Cuba. I mean, the the state is very effective at, at, you know, cracking down on dissent. So what happened in the summer is you had major protests over a day or, you know, in some places it lasted a little into the second day, but mostly in a day. You had protests in over 50 locations across the island, some with hundreds of people, some with just a handful. And the, you know, the government came out strong and arrested over a thousand people. Uh, some of those people are on trial now and getting very, very severe sentences, including children, even, even you know, children as young as 15 and 16 who are getting severe sentences. And, um, and really what has happened, then there was going to be another protest in November and it didn't materialize in part because this in part because the state put everyone uh, or the, the you know, known dissidents under house arrest. And what has happened since then is that people who might have been moved to join a protest uh, are instead perhaps more focused on trying to mm, leave. Interesting. I think that's I think the energy, the, the energy of discontent is being funneled into that rather than into protest. The book, Cuba and American History, it, it's extremely readable. You tell these stories, you narratize these people and events. Um, again, you well capture the horrors of the early days, certainly in the slave trade and, and so on. And of course, we know many slaves were brought to the U.S. from Cuba when they couldn't be brought directly. So I really, it really made the book, the book much more readable than maybe what people would think of as a history, you know, book. So thank thank you you for that. That that was my idea. (laughs) Oh, good. Well, again, a Pulitzer Prize. Well done, Pulitzer Prize in history. But I guess I wanted to leave you. We were talking about Buena Vista Social Club and the song we played before we brought you on. And I wonder to get beyond that, is there a famous or favorite Cuban artist of yours we could go out on or a song? Ooh, a song. Um, Hmm. I'm just blanking on the name. I mean, actually, I love I love old music. Uh, so something like I love Lagrimas Negras. Okay. By there's different versions of it. Uh, Black Tears. Uh, it's a beautiful song. Yeah. So Lag- Lagrimas Negras, and I'm just blanking on the on the artist, the original artist. There's many different versions of it. Thank you very much. Dr. Ada, also Ada, you go by both names. Thank you for that. Dr. Ada Ferrer, the Julius Silver Professor of History and Latin American and Caribbean History at New York University. Her new book earned her the Pulitzer Prize in History, Cuba and American History, and it's out now. Dr. Ferrer, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you to all our guests on Radioactive this hour. If you like the show tonight, you want to share it, you can, of course, listen on demand with the KRCL mobile app available wherever you get your apps, or, of course, simply stream it online from the Radioactive Archive under the Community Affairs tab. Go to krcl.org. Questions, comments, suggestions? Hey, send us an email, radioactive at krcl. I'm Nick Burns. Next up, Democracy Now! And here is Black Tears. Oh, okay.